Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the ninth episode of Season 5 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. As this episode airs, uh, we're in the week leading up to Tom Petty Weekend in Gainesville, Florida, and if you didn't get a chance to listen to my conversation with the event's producer, Dan Spice, I do recommend checking that out. Dan's very knowledgeable about a ton of Gainesville-related music stuff, and we had a wonderful chat about his vision for future Tom Petty tourism in the city, which was a super cool thing that he um, he kind of let me in on. Um, I really wish I was able to attend the shows down there uh, this weekend coming, but I will live vicariously through the stories and the photos that you all share, so don't be stingy with them. Today we're digging into the fantastic second track from Side 2 of Long After Dark, Straight Into Darkness. As always, go give the song a listen before we get started. You'll find a link in the episode notes. Uh, And once I'm done um, with my thoughts and opinions, go back and check out the song again and see what you think. Paul Zolo described Straight Into Darkness to Tom in Conversations with Tom Petty as a powerful song. And Tom's response is, that's a good one, yeah. That was in the same period as We Stand a Chance. And I remember it really came to life when we turned it over to the piano. We let the piano take it. We were trying to do it more guitar-based when we first started recording it. When it got turned over to the piano is when it really started to show what it was about. That piano intro really sets the whole mood for this song right out of the gate. And straight away, it's an unconventional pattern. Benmont's left hand playing the bass notes doesn't start on the root note of the chord, and the right hand plays almost in counterpoint to what the bass line is doing at times. So you get this fantastic suspended chord progression that sounds a little like, if you think about sort of late 70s, early 80s stranglers, you know, in their more melodic moments, it's got that kind of vibe to it. The other thing about this intro and the song in general really is it's kind of hard to learn by ear if you're playing it on piano because the tape speed has definitely been changed in the mix. This was something Tom got into doing around this time and it drove Stan Lynch crazy. In Warren Zane's biography, Stan says, they went through the rectum of the fourth dimension and never came back. We'll probably talk a little bit about that when John Paulson and I do our album rap episode because this album was one of those um, periods in the Heartbreakers career where Stan was really sort of volatile and they had to work to sort of get him back into the studio they would bring in other drummers and try the drums out but like i said john paulson and i will probably get into that but you know speeding up or slowing down the mix very slightly it's a pretty common recording trick which is used to give the song either a slightly tighter or slightly looser feel in this case the song is sped up a fraction from what it would have been played at Stan plays a nice short little trill on the hi-hat to actually open this song on the forehand before the piano comes in on the one. And after those initial four bars, Tom's guitar then joins the mix to add to that suspension. The drums also come in here and there's a distinct cowbell keeping time while Stan plugs in the gaps with cymbals and some additional fills through the next four bars, after which we get the full band playing. And Mike then adds in a, a buzzy-toned lead guitar into the mix, playing an almost discordant progression over the top of everything else, and how he's playing a neat, stuttering, picked bass line. Listen to how he's playing those double notes. Dum, da, da, dum, dum, da, da, dum. And it gives it a little bit of swing and a little bit more soul. One thing I noticed a few weeks back, and I mentioned it to Megan Volpert when I was talking to her about this track, is that there's a very distinct similarity in the tone of this song and that piano intro to The Police's 1983 hit, King of Pain. I went back to look at which song was recorded first, and The Police went into the studio in December of 1992 to record Synchronicity, 
with Long After Dark coming out on November 2nd, 1982. So maybe Sting had heard the track and thought that the overall feel of it would complement the lyrics he'd been writing about the break of his, of his first marriage. Or maybe it was just a case of convergent musical evolution and both men came up with similar ways of writing songs about uncertainty and pain. The intros aren't identical, but when they're coupled with the thematic direction of each song, they're definitely musical cousins. They have that same sort of suspended feel in the, in the, in the verses and then this big resolution to a major key in the, in the chorus. We get an additional eight bars of intro with the whole band playing, and in the fourth of those bars, right around the 22-second mark, you hear Mike playing a deadened note, and I'd be willing to bet that at the time when it was recorded, it was accidental, but the band liked it and left it in to add a kind of, you know, fly in the ointment in an already restless, unresolved chord progression. And if you listen to the version, the live version on Live Anthology, which, I'll, again, I'll put a link to uh, in the notes, Mike plays that again deliberately. Stan's playing some lovely double-time hats and adding in hat lifts to the mix to really make this song quite involved from the start. Those drums are really big and meaty again, but when you listen to Stan's fill into the first verse, he actually pulls off the attack in those latter snare hits. So it's another example of Stan being so much more than a power drummer, which is what he's often pigeonholed as. During the verse, that with that cowbell keeping time, Mike's guitar tone is almost... It's almost got that sort of Don't Fear the Reaper... Um, vibe about it. And it's got a you know it's got a similar feel to the sustained irregular riff that plays in Bloister Cult's massive classic track, and it's kind of the same progression for the first bar of every two. The verse is beautifully arranged musically, with the instrumentation initially dropped way off, but building intensity into the chorus, and especially the first four bars. So they're fairly quiet, and then it starts to build a little bit, and then the second four bars really sort of ramp up that volume and that intensity. You don't hear Ben Mont's piano in the verse, but I'm pretty sure there's some organ. It might even be a little bit of synth or something in that treble range, as with the guitars panned slightly left and right, there's definitely something sitting in the centre. And I love that decision to bury a little something in there to add to the suspense and the unresolved feel of this section of the song. The song really leaves you feeling slightly uneasy to this point, with no clear path to any sort of resolution, but then we get that big major key chord change to start the chorus. And that main five-note phrase or riff in the chorus is pure Roger McGuinn, and Tom employs its impact to superb effect here. It's just so clever to have that bright, sunny lick just before the words, we went straight into darkness, which straddle that change to the minor chord. The verses being so dark or pensive thematically, that C major chord in the chorus really lifts the song into that B section brilliantly. I talked lots about how damned good Tom and Mike were at playing off one another and finding notes and spaces for each other within the same chord. And this chorus is another exceptional example of that with Tom's simple ascending broken C chord sitting at halftime over Mike's jangling bird's lick. Just gorgeous. Uh, the chorus also features one of Howie Epstein's soaringly beautiful harmony parts. It's pretty incredible that he was in immediate lockstep with Tom vocally on this record. It's so seamless that you could be forgiven for thinking that Tom was doubling himself, the way that the rhythmic pattern of the vocal line is so precise. After that first chorus, we then get a four-bar intro back into the second verse, which matches the, the tenor and feel of the eight-bar band intro to the first verse. In the second verse, you can really hear Stan's triplets on the hi-hats clearly. The second verse plays out pretty much the same way the first one does, with the same gradual build, but we also get a couple of clear, bright, harmonic guitar notes from Mike at the start of the fourth bar of this verse. Again, in the chorus, we get that, whatever, organ synth or whatever it is, filling in the sound, and Howie adding in some ascending octave runs in the bass line. And throughout the chorus, how he's playing a slightly straighter part without the those double bass notes. And this allows that guitar lick, the vocal, and the lyric to occupy center stage completely. The bridge in this one comes in hard, really impactful. There's an immediate change from C to D, and then the key change to G. And there's a wonderful descending organ fill from Benmont in that two-bar interlude. 
But during the rest of the bridge, Mike's playing some more sort of birds, hollies-esque padding in the gaps between the lyrics. This section is pretty cool in that it tricks you with its structure. We have that two-bar intro to the main section with a four-bar progression of roots, fourth, fifth chords, which in this case is G, C, and D. And then the second part is actually six bars instead of four with that G to C repeated twice before the last two bars in D. So again, all these little things to try to make the song just a little bit more interesting and take it somewhere you're not necessarily expecting it to go. After this middle 12, as it ends up being, Tom vocalizes us into the solo section where Mike deploys that blue oyster cultesque tone that I was talking about earlier. And it's not even really that the tone, the guitar tone itself is super close. I think it's how Mike is playing that progression and leaving pauses where you wouldn't ordinarily leave them. It's got that sort of almost sort of behind the beat timing to it. And this solo is played over top of the main verse chord progression. It's a very simple melodic solo dancing around those suspended chords rather than being any sort of shredding. And after the guitar solo, this gives way to Benmont reprising the piano lick from the opening eight bars, but an octave higher. And you also get Mike adding in those harmonic notes right at the end of this section again. Alrighty, folks, it's time to put on your thinking caps once more and get ready for this week's Petty Trivia. Your question from last week was this. Which of the following facts about Gainesville, Florida is not true? A, it is home to the University of Florida, which is the fourth largest public university in the U.S. by enrollment. B, tech company Shazam was founded in Gainesville in 2006 by resident Josh Greenberg. C, the town's population has more than quadrupled in size since Tom was born there. Or D, Gainesville's record temperature has, ironically, never hit 105 degrees. Well, the maximum temperature recorded in Gainesville was 104 on June 27, 1952. On October 20, 1950, the day that Tom entered the world, it was a warm but not sweltering 85 degrees. The University of Florida ranks fourth in enrollment behind Texas A&M in top spot, the University of Central Florida, and Ohio State. And when Tom was born, the population of Gainesville was approximately 27,000 and has grown to over 140,000 today. Which means that the only fact that was untrue was Josh Greenberg founding Shazam in Gainesville in 2006. Greenberg was a tech entrepreneur, but founded GrooveShark rather than Shazam, which was a service, you know, it's very similar to YouTube, but for music. And after GrooveShark was taken offline due to a series of lawsuits from Universal, Sony and Warner Music, Greenberg died unexpectedly of unknown causes in 2015 at the age of 28. And on April 18th of the following year, one day after his birthday, the Gainesville Area Chamber of Commerce staged the first annual Josh Greenberg Day in his honour. So your question for this week is this. Surrealist pop artist Robert Daber created the album art for which album? Is it A, Highway Companion? B, Into the Great Wide Open? C, Southern Accents? Or D, hypnotic eye. Okay, back to the song. Coming back out of that bridge solo reprise, the instrumentation really takes a backseat to the vocal, even more so than on those first two verses. We'll talk about the lyrics shortly, but it's worth noting here that the final verse of this song is, I would argue, one of the strongest Tom wrote on the first five albums, maybe even the first seven. 
Um, he could always write a killer chorus and always had lines here and there that you marvel at. But this entire last verse is a work of art and leads into the final chorus in a very clever way, which I hadn't picked out at all until reading Megan Volpert's book. The last thing to say about that, though, is that the way Tom sings the word on in the last line of this final verse is, again, so major key positive and cathartic that it crescendos into the last chorus just as majestically as the instruments do. The chorus repeats, and then we have the guitar solo section repeated with Howie laying down some extra sauce on the bass underneath it, and then this section fades us out. In that second chorus, I think Tom is doubling Howie's harmony as it sounds a little bit fuller and it's higher in the mix. Tom also plays around with the melody line a little more too, especially on that final night at the end of the very last line. So onto the lyrics of this one. Going back to Paul Zolo's comment that this song is powerful, I think that's actually an understatement. And I'm not going to dig massively into the analysis of the whole thing, as I'm going to do a book review of Megan Volpert's triumphant philosophical dissection of Tom's meaning in in this song for her book Straight Into Darkness, Tom Petty as Rock Mystic. Her appraisal and assessment of it is far deeper and far more um, in-depth and insightful than anything I could put together. But I did want to highlight a couple of things that I picked up from reading her analysis. The first thing is, the three verses of this song are very, very different. The first one talks about a romantic association and is Tom's wistful recollection of love lost. The second is very specifically about the heartbreakers heading to UK, probably early in their career, and the line, there was nothing, only black sky, paints a picture of uncertainty. But the final verse is just the pure fighting spirit of I won't back down. Tom's looking for redemption and sonically we get it in this final stanza. The other observation, which I alluded to earlier, is the very clever, very subtle switch in the way the last verse and the following chorus connect. In the first and second verses, the last line ends. The feeling just died, period, and only black sky, period, with the chorus beginning a new phrase, we went straight into darkness. With the final verse, the last line ends with the strong carry on, and then the chorus begins with straight into darkness. So you can read that entire phrase as, the weak ones fall, the strong carry on straight into darkness. So that indomitable spirit of determination, darkness, unknown, but you head into it and you hope that you come out the other side of it. And as Tom says of the last verse in Conversations with Tom Petty, there's some hope in it. It wasn't just a downer. You know, that last verse is it's just spectacular. Every line concisely perfect, every word deliberately placed. I don't believe the good times are over. I don't believe the thrill is all gone. Real love is a man's salvation. The weak ones fall. The strong carry on straight into darkness. As I say, I'm going to put out a special, probably fairly short bonus episode in the next couple of weeks talking about Megan Volpert's book. But let me summarize it very quickly by saying that it's one of the best artistic critiques I've ever read. Um, It combines the author's personal connection to the song with a rigorous academic approach to understanding and dissecting the lyrics, as well as, as an inspection of their poetic meter, which I found interesting. It's written in ferociously passionate and unapologetic prose, and I would seriously recommend that anyone who loves Tom Petty's music, and this song in particular, should most definitely read it. Um, As a final word on Megan's work and that last chorus, if you read her article, which she wrote when Tom passed, she structured her farewell to Tom around the sentiment of those last four lines. Okay, folks, that's all for this week. Um, Talking about how this song finally came together, Tom tells Paul Zolo that sometimes it takes a lot of work. 
Sometimes the songs won't reveal themselves to you until you find the right sound and the right recording of it. And this one was like that. You couldn't really get everybody grooving the same way until we went over to the piano, and then everybody instinctually found what to play. But that's part of working with a group. It's well documented that Tom wasn't completely happy with Long After Dark, but according to a Rolling Stone's 2020 article, Tom Petty's 50 Greatest Songs, Tom said, That song was one of the few things I was excited about on Long After Dark. Straight Into Darkness is my favourite song on the album, and I also think it's the strongest overall. It's a fairly simple arrangement, as I've said, and it doesn't stray far from the quintessential Heartbreaker sound, but there's something about the angst and pain of the first half of it and the resolution of that third verse, combined with that striking piano intro that just elevates it above everything else on the record for me. So I'm giving Straight Into Darkness a perfect score, 10 out of 10. I'm going to leave the last word to Megan, though, actually. Um, As she explained to me in our conversation, this song saved her from a potentially catastrophic decision in her life, and the way she ends the introduction to her book is both touching and poetic and provides a great coda to this episode. She writes, Rock and roll is a church, and Tom Petty was one of my priests. He was a spiritual gangster, and then he died. He went straight into darkness, and I am still here, very much alive. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so, please, if you have the means. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross Donation page in the episode notes, and I will continue to do that. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Uh, The other shows on the network are Sabbath Bloody Podcast, Skinnered Reconsidered, the Deep Purple Podcast, T-Bones Prime Cuts on the other side, uh, In the Lap of the Pods, the Magician's Podcast, which covers Uriah Heap, Hawk Binge, Maiden A to Z, Diary of the Mad Men, Universally Speaking, the Red Hot Chili Peppers podcast, Metal Gods podcast, dedicated to Judas Priest, and the podcast Will Rock, one of my favorite podcasts, Backtracks, Aerosmith Revisited, So Far, So Pod, So What, which is dedicated to Megadeth, and Backtracks theme music. Go check them out. They're really good people doing great work. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Um, you can also find me on YouTube, of course. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable. I won't badge you for a review or a rating if you haven't already left one. If you have already left one, thank you very much. Don't forget that the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first to try to find what you're looking for and go to TomPetty.com for official merchandise. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member of those as they are excellent fan communities and they are well worth spending time in. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to dig into the Stonesy, the blues-drenched, same old you. Bye-bye.